what seems an inevitable consequence of geography and of interest, which is just that Russia cares so much more about what happens in Ukraine than America does. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to this special seasonal edition of America Explained. I'm going to be talking about how Vladimir Putin has put the West on his naughty list, precipitating a military crisis over Ukraine, which threatens to plunge Europe into war and dominate American media and politics in the opening weeks of 2022. Over the last few months, Russia's built up a military force of about 100,000 soldiers near Ukraine, threatening a renewed invasion of a country that it's already intervened in many times since seizing Crimea. And then what did Vladimir Putin do? Well, he said that if the West wants this invasion to not go ahead, then it has to agree to a, let's say, very ambitious set of demands involving the future of NATO, whether it's going to expand further east towards Russia, and where America is allowed to deploy its military forces and missiles within Europe. The Biden administration seems unsure about how to respond. It's had difficulty getting on the same page as its European allies, countries like France and Germany, who often take a softer line towards Russia than Washington does. And it's really not clear how this is going to unfold over the next couple of months. So two months from now, we might be in a war. A really, really consequential war. Remember that Russia is one of the, probably the only country in the world that could wipe the United States off the face of the planet with its nuclear arsenal. So even though this isn't right now the biggest story in every newspaper, I think that's because, you know, people are hoping, they're expecting that this invasion by Russia isn't actually going to happen that tensions aren't going to increase and get out of control, but it's a real serious possibility that that could happen. So that's why in this episode, I'm going to take a bit of time to explore the history of what's going on here, the history of this conflict, talk a little bit about what the Biden administration has done so far, but why that's insufficient to really end this crisis, then also talk about what I think the Biden administration should do in order to really try to tamp down tensions with Russia, accept some realities of the situation, and try to put European security on a more stable footing, especially in an era when we know that America is just not as committed Committed to Europe as it used to be, has so many other irons in the fire, so many concerns about China. And I think that means that America needs to be realistic about what it can accomplish in Ukraine. It needs to be realistic about whether or not it can continue to dictate to Russia about what happens in a country that borders Russia and, and you know, that which America is not at the end of the day going to fight for, as the Biden administration has itself admitted. So that's today's episode. I really hope you enjoy it. Please also check out the America Explained Substack. That's a free newsletter that I put out once or twice a month with in-depth analytical posts about American foreign policy and politics. I did a post very recently just about this very issue. Really recommend that you check that post out and you can do so by looking in the show notes. Okay, so let's begin by really kind of digging back into why this conflict is happening. Why is there tension between America and Russia over the future of Ukraine? And the answer to that question really goes back to the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Ukraine became independent along with all of the other former states of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s and began charting an independent course which was, you know, independent from Russia. Ukraine had essentially been ruled from Moscow. Now it was an independent state and it needed to make decisions not only about its internal governing relations, was it going to become a democracy, was it going to become capitalist, but also about its foreign policy. Now, Ukrainians were naturally very, very worried about their security vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Russia had invaded their country, you know, forced it into the Soviet Union decades beforehand, and Ukrainians wanted to be really sure that they were going to maintain their independence in the future. Many other countries in Eastern and Central Europe felt the same way, of course. You know, they, they'd, they'd all been forced into the Soviet Union, so Russia was their main security challenge going forward. And this desire for these countries to gain independence and security and maintain those things kind of matched up with Western officials' desire to ensure their own security, to kind of make sure that the Soviet Union wasn't going to be reconstituted, that Russia wasn't going to emerge as a security threat to Europe again in the future. And this kind of took its form in an expansion of NATO. So NATO, of course, is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's the alliance that faced down the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But then when the Cold War ended, NATO started to expand eastward and take on new members, members who'd previously been part of the Soviet Union. So NATO expanded to Poland, it expanded to Hungary, expanded to the Baltic states, you know, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. And this was a really controversial thing to happen because Russians still felt that, you know, NATO kind of existed to be an anti-Russia alliance, that NATO was the prime security threat to Russia. You know, Russians had, had difficulty getting out of the Cold War mindset of seeing NATO as the enemy. So it was concerning to them that NATO was getting closer and closer to Russia's borders, you know, closer and closer to Moscow, closer and closer to those avenues and those geographical areas that actually Russia had been invaded over many times in the past by Napoleon, by Hitler. And these experiences gave Russian policymakers this real fear of, of what seemed to them to be encirclement by NATO countries, encirclement by this alliance that ultimately was anti-Russia in its orientation, even if throughout the late 2000s, NATO was mostly involved in overseas missions outside of Europe, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. But I think that everyone knew that you know, Poland and Hungary and the Baltic states, they didn't join NATO because they were so keen to take part in the war on terror. They joined NATO as a measure of security against Russia. But to Russian elites, this looked like aggression by NATO. Just as, I think, American elites would view it as an aggressive act by Russia if Russia attempted to establish a self-defense alliance with Mexico or Canada or Cuba. That actually happened in the past, right? You've heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So countries tend to get very, very sensitive when other superpowers are messing around in their own backyard. Now, Ukraine was a particularly contentious piece of this puzzle for a number of reasons. One is its geographical location that it basically leads right into the heart of Russia. But another is that there's this perceived cultural and ethnic similarity between Russians and Ukrainians almost to the point that many Russians don't really view Ukrainians as a separate independent people, and they don't really view the existence of an independent Ukrainian state 
as a legitimate thing. They think that basically Ukraine is part of the historic homeland of the Russian people and it should be ruled from Moscow. So Ukraine has this kind of special place in Russian national mythology. It was also at the end of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union fell a place that hosted about one third of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. And this was generally viewed at the time, I think rightly so, as kind of pretty dangerous. You had these two countries next to each other, historically bad relations. One of them doesn't really have a history of respecting the independence and sovereignty of the other one, and they both have nuclear weapons, you know? So this was viewed as a situation that could really get out of hand. And as a result of that, Ukraine was essentially kind of pressured and persuaded to giving up its nuclear weapons. So Something that it did in 1994 and at the same time when it did so it received security guarantees from the west but also from russia which basically said that okay ukraine's going to become kind of this neutral space between the west and russia we're not going to intervene in it or, or chomp away bits of its territory we're not going to pressure it to have one form of government or another. We're just going to guarantee that Ukraine gets left to its own devices. And this meant that Ukraine became kind of a buffer state between the West and Russia. Even as NATO expanded, it wasn't getting too close to the Russian heartland because Ukraine was in the way. Russia had that measure of security by knowing that NATO forces weren't right on its doorstep. The West, meanwhile, had the, the same assurance that the bulk of Russia's military was not going to be right at the borders of NATO. So Ukraine kind of, it provided breathing space and kind of a bit of assurance to both sides. This really changed in 2008 when the Bush administration, which at the time was feeling very, very hawkish towards Russia, persuaded the other allies within NATO to extend an offer of NATO membership to Ukraine and also to Georgia a small country on Russia's southern border. And this was something that most of the NATO allies didn't want to do. They didn't feel nearly as hawkish towards Russia as the Bush administration did. They didn't think it was a good idea to kind of poke Russia in the eye over an issue that was so important to it. So there was this compromise they came up with where they basically said, okay, Ukraine and Georgia, you can join NATO, but we're not actually going to say exactly when that's going to happen. We just say that it will happen at some point in the future. This was, for many reasons, not a very good idea because it didn't really give Ukraine and Georgia actually some sort of concrete idea of when they would get to join NATO, but it really, really angered Russia. And Russia actually invaded Georgia shortly after this decision was taken and then in 2014, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine, seized Crimea from Ukraine, and then also sent its army into other parts of the country in the east to kind of gin up this insurgency against the Ukrainian government. And the reason for doing that is because with this ongoing conflict in Ukraine between Russian-backed separatists and the central government, that means that Ukraine can never ever actually join NATO. Because if Ukraine did join NATO, it would be subject to the collective defense obligations of that treaty, and that would plunge NATO into an immediate war with Russia, something that NATO really, really doesn't want. So just by having this military presence in the country, Vladimir Putin can effectively stop Ukraine's NATO members from ever happening anyway. But what it seems he wants to do now with this renewed threat of invasion is go even further and try to get even bigger, broader guarantees from America and from NATO 
about how the alliance is going to conduct itself in the future and, and get what he sees as security guarantees to try to guarantee that NATO cannot become a threat to Russia. So after the break, I'm going to talk about that some more and talk about how the Biden administration has responded so far. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So what the Russian government has been engaged in over the last month or so is essentially military blackmail. They're saying to America, we are going to invade Ukraine unless you meet a certain series of demands. The key parts of those demands are that NATO will not expand to involve Georgia or Russia, it won't expand further east towards Russian borders from where it is currently, and also that NATO will redeploy military assets which are currently near Russia or missiles that currently target Russia and basically take them out of Europe. So turn back the clock on American military deployments over the last couple of decades and basically leave Europe less well defended or as Russia portrays it, less kind of bristling with military equipment which it believes is aimed at Russia. Now, this list of demands is very, very extensive. It's something that America could never ever accept. You know, America's not going to, the Biden administration, particularly given that, that it doesn't want to be branded as weak towards Russia, no American administration could accept taking these demands at the point of a gun, being dictated to in this manner. And it's likely that Russia doesn't mean for all of its demands to be met. But I think that the really key ones are to do with NATO expansion. This is just my reading of the situation that what Russia really, really wants is a guarantee that Ukraine is never actually going to join NATO and that NATO in general isn't going to take on new members on Russia's borders. This demand is also widely rejected by NATO officials, you know, Western officials in other countries, by the Biden administration so far, who say basically that it's not for Russia to dictate what NATO does and it's not for Russia to dictate what the sovereign Ukrainian government does. So if Ukraine wants to join NATO, it meets the conditions that are typically put on applicants for membership, it should be allowed to do so. And the Biden administration has responded with its own set of threats towards Moscow. So it's said that if Russia goes ahead with this renewed invasion of Ukraine, then the Biden administration is going to carry out a number of steps. The first of those is to impose quote-unquote devastating economic consequences on Russia. What these consequences would be hasn't actually really been explained yet. Even when Secretary of State Blinken spoke recently with European countries about coming up with a joint plan for retaliation, there wasn't actually a concrete statement of what would happen at the end of that meeting. So I think this means that America is not able to find agreement with European countries about what should be done to Russia. Actually, during the Crimea crisis, we also saw this split between the Americans and the Europeans on this question. I mean, there's various ways that you can frame this. Some people say the Europeans have gone soft or, you know, that they, they just don't live in the real world and they're not willing to stand up to Russia. They want to appease it. I would say that 
I would frame this a little bit differently and say the Europeans are very close to Russia. They have to deal with Russia in a way that America doesn't. And they also, I think, fundamentally understand, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, and in fact, as we see by talking through this list of consequences that the Biden administration has laid out, that ultimately America probably isn't going to put its money where its mouth is in stopping a Russian invasion of Ukraine. So it's not really wise to pretend that they are and go along being really, really aggressive and hostile towards Russia, just annoying Russia, and then it's the Europeans who have to live with the consequences. So there is this split between America and Europe on this issue. But then also, like I said, actually, the Biden administration isn't really been clear about what it will do in the event of an invasion of Ukraine. So they've actually ruled out one of the most consequential things that America could do to Moscow. That's to cut Russia off from the international banking system to basically make it impossible for Russian companies or consumers to operate um, across borders, to do business across borders. This would do enormous harm to the Russian economy. It would basically just cut Russia off from globalization, from the global economy. But it's also something that Moscow once described as tantamount to a declaration of war. It's something that Russia has indicated it takes very, very seriously and might actually bring retaliation back from Russia against NATO and against America. And the Biden administration doesn't want that to happen. So they've ruled that out. They have said that they'll do a few other things. So they've said that in the event of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, they'll send more and more NATO forces to the eastern members of NATO, to places like Poland, to make places like the Baltic states. But they categorically have said that they will not send American soldiers to Ukraine to fight Russia. So they've made it abundantly clear they have no intention of militarily defending Ukraine. They're just threatening to reinforce other members, well, to reinforce actual members of NATO, because of course Ukraine isn't actually a member of NATO. They have said that they'll send further military assistance to Ukraine. The existence of this as military assistance is something that's already very, very irksome to Russia. And, you know, the U.S. will send kind of like equipment, like vehicles and missiles and money and things of this nature to help Ukrainian forces fight off Russia. But even here, the administration hasn't really been that clear about what it's going to do. So recently, there's been talk of there's this huge chunk of military equipment that was due to go to Afghanistan, but obviously that's not necessary anymore. So there's been talk of redirecting that towards Ukraine. So even on the military assistance front, the administration isn't really been clear about what they're doing. Probably the most concrete and the most consequential thing that they've announced so far is the US has said that in the event of an invasion, the Biden administration will force the cancellation of Nord Stream 2, which is this controversial gas pipeline that leads from Russia to Germany, and is seen as perhaps making Germany and other European countries overly dependent on Russian energy, and then perhaps you know, kind of subject to diplomatic pressure from Russia. So that's it. That's all the administration has announced so far in terms of what they will do if Russia invades Ukraine. And I think it's really notable that they're basically not actually threatening to do anything that, that would actually force Russia out of Ukraine. 
America is not going to send its own troops to defend Ukraine. Remember that Russia has a nuclear arsenal that could lay waste to the entire United States. Kiev is not worth sacrificing Washington and New York City and Los Angeles for. The Biden administration has made that perfectly clear. So this places a premium on finding a negotiated solution to the conflict, and that's what the Biden administration is now trying to do. They've dispatched an envoy to Europe to meet with the Russians, meet with the Europeans, meet with the Ukrainians, and try to negotiate a way out of this situation. And that's where I want to turn to, to my view on how I think this situation can be resolved or, or how at least they should try to resolve it and to move forward here. For me, what is so telling about this situation is that the real main controversy here which is the offer by NATO to eventually bring Ukraine into its membership, is something that everybody agrees is never actually going to happen. NATO is never going to actually bring Ukraine into the alliance because they know that would be such a huge provocation to Russia and it would risk plunging NATO and Russia into a war which, which NATO doesn't want. You know, we, we know that America does not consider Ukraine a vital national interest, whereas Russia clearly does consider Ukraine to be a vital national interest. So you have this kind of disparity, this asymmetry in how important this issue is to both sides. And that means that, you know, in my opinion, it's kind of a little bit foolish to try to hold back the tide here, to hold back what seems an inevitable consequence of geography and of interest which is just that Russia cares so much more about what happens in Ukraine than America does. But America is left with this kind of phantom commitment to Ukraine that it never intends to actually honor. It never intends to actually bring Ukraine into the West as an integral member of NATO. It doesn't intend to defend Ukraine militarily if Russia attacks it. So it offers basically this provocation without any purpose behind it, without any strategy behind it. And that's why I think even though I am far from being an apologist of Vladimir Putin or for Russia, I'm far from being a reflective dove or a reflective pacifist in international affairs, but I really think that America should consider making the formal guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO. And also, actually, that Crimea will never be returned to Ukraine by Russia. After the break, I'm going to talk a little bit more about why I think this and why it's so hard for American officials to accept what seem to me to be the plain realities of the situation. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. So why do I think that America should make these concessions to what we can all agree is a very unsavory, autocratic government, one that's invaded its neighbors, killed thousands of people, suppresses dissent at home, does all these horrible things, and, and in no way do I approve of what the Russian government does. But why do I think the Biden administration should make a deal with it then? It's a difficult question. And it's been difficult for me to arrive at this conclusion, but I have a few reasons for thinking it. 
For me, it all comes down to the fact that we all know at the end of the day that America isn't going to put its geopolitical muscle where its mouth is over the question of Ukraine. And that means that actually America has it's overextended itself, it's got itself in a situation that just invites crisis after crisis and invites actually a really damaging blow to America's credibility. Now, people will often say that if we give in to Russia's demands over Ukraine, if we admit that Ukraine's never gonna join NATO, then it's only going to invite further aggression by Russia because basically it shows that NATO isn't credible as an alliance, that it doesn't stand up to Russia, it doesn't face Russia down. So that's gonna just gonna make Putin think he can do what he wants. I actually have completely the opposite view of this situation because there's a big difference between countries that are actually members of NATO like Poland, like the Baltic states and Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So I think it's really strange to say that if NATO doesn't defend this non-member or bring this country into its membership, even understanding that will lead to a war with Russia, that that harms NATO's credibility. I think actually that what harms NATO's credibility is that it's established this kind of halfway house of a relationship with Ukraine. Ukraine is considered to be a quote-unquote partner of NATO, but not actually a member. And that raises expectations of what NATO will do in defense of Ukraine, expectations that can never ever actually be met. And it's by doing this that NATO has caused its own credibility to be questioned. What NATO should do is say very firmly, we have alliance members, we will always defend those alliance members, we take the risk of nuclear war for one another within NATO, but of course we don't do that for countries that are outside of NATO, like Ukraine is. Nothing will harm NATO's credibility more than its members swearing themselves to the defense of a foreign state and then doing nothing when Russian tanks roll over that state's borders. So I think the solution to this, or, or a way forward here at least, practically, is that America needs to make really, really clear, along with the other NATO members, that what happens in Ukraine actually has nothing to do with the credibility of NATO. What happens to Poland? What happens to Hungary? What happens to Spain? These are issues that are to do with the credibility of NATO, but Ukraine just isn't. There's also, though, of course, a moral argument here, which I am affected by very strongly. So, of course, it's morally abhorrent that Russia intervenes in Ukraine. It's morally abhorrent that Russia tries to dictate the future of Ukraine and what happens within Ukraine. And it's true that in an ideal world, this sort of power politics would not exist and large countries wouldn't be able to dictate what happens within smaller ones. But it's important for us to remember that this just isn't the world that we live in. It's not even the world that the United States lives in. You know, the US frequently coerces and pressures smaller states, particularly those ones in its neighborhood, to adopt foreign policies and even internal governing arrangements that suit American interests. So during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, America didn't just say, oh, well, Cuba is a sovereign nation, so Cuba can host Soviet missiles. There's nothing we can do about that. It's not our right to say anything about that. 
No, America, you know, mobilized its military to stop that from happening because it viewed it as a national security threat. Countries are very, very sensitive to what happens on their borders. And that is true of Russia. And it's true of Russia's relations with Ukraine. Just ask Mexico and Canada whether they have ever felt constrained or coerced or pressured by the US. Or ask American policymakers how they would feel if Russia formed a military alliance with Canada. So, in a sense, you have to take morality out of this equation to an extent and recognize that great powers, superpowers, have interests. They have interests particularly in their own neighborhoods, on their own borders. And in a way, the U.S. is just trying to alter this kind of general universal force of geopolitical gravity by pulling Ukraine away from Russia. Something that, if America was actually serious about, would involve an enormous investment of resources and a willingness to take great, great risks to help dictate the future of Ukraine and stop Russia from doing that. But it's clear that America is not going to take those risks. And there's also a moral reason not to take those risks, which is that any war that took place between America and Russia could fundamentally wipe out human civilization on this planet, or at least lead to millions, tens, hundreds of millions of deaths. So for America not to try to, as I've put it, alter this force of geopolitical gravity by intervening in Ukraine strongly and and going to war with Russia over Ukraine is a moral choice as well. It's a choice not to get embroiled in a horrendous, horrendous conflict. And sadly, Ukraine may suffer from its geographical proximity to this horrendous regime in Russia, but there's ultimately only so much that America can do about that. But American policymakers, I think, find it very, very difficult to admit limitations to their own power. They find it very difficult to admit when there are things that they cannot do. And that's left us in this kind of halfway house situation where they speak very strongly about the need to maintain Ukraine's independence and sovereignty. They promise theoretically that Ukraine will be in NATO in the future because they don't want to make it look like they're bowing to Russian pressure. But actually, they're just fundamentally not going to do what's necessary to really deliver this policy, deliver this defense for the Ukrainian people. So you're also, in a way, misleading the Ukrainian people, making them feel like there is protection coming when actually there isn't protection coming. That's another moral reason why I think this is a bad policy. So... What am I actually calling for the Biden administration to do? Well, I think that in these upcoming negotiations, they should be willing to put on the table the idea that Ukraine will never be a member of NATO. They should be willing to agree to that because everyone knows it's never going to happen. Just like everyone knows that at the end of the day, there's no way that Russia is going to be forced to give Crimea back to Ukraine after it seized it earlier in the last decade. And by accepting these things, hopefully America can use these concessions as a building block to find a new footing, a new relationship with Russia in Europe, one which no longer is based on so much mutual hostility, no longer based so much on Russian fears. NATO should return to its core mission of self-defense of its existing neighbors and stop expanding further eastward in a way that I don't really think accomplishes anything but provokes Russia. So do I think this is a deal that can actually be done? 
I'm not sure. And of course, America would need to get strong guarantees from Russia. Russia has to give things up as well. Russia has to make agreements about the way it's going to behave in the future. And I think the aim should be not to transform Ukraine into some kind of Russian protectorate, but try maybe to make Ukraine go back to the way it was in the 90s when it was more of a neutral zone between the two countries, a buffer that both saw as valuable because it meant that they weren't bumping up against each other, that NATO and Russia weren't directly on each other's borders so much and weren't threatening one another. If that deal can be done, I don't know, because ultimately none of us really know what Vladimir Putin actually wants. But I think that this is what America has to try to do now at least. Try to hold off from, from uh, you know, provoking Russia to actually go through with this invasion of Ukraine, which is going to be so destabilizing. It's going to plunge relations between Russia and NATO to new and dangerous lows, which has implications for the future. So I think that right now we have to talk, we have to do negotiations and see if a deal can be done. But also recognize that ultimately telling the truth about Ukraine and what America is willing to do for Ukraine and what it's not willing to do for Ukraine is actually the moral thing to do at this point as well. It's the moral thing to do to no longer be making these promises to Ukraine that, you know, the Biden administration, no American administration has any intention of actually keeping. So, that's it for today. This was a controversial episode, I guess. I'd really like it if you get in touch with me to tell me what you think. In the show notes, you can find a link to my newsletter where I've written about this topic. Go leave me a comment. Let me know what you think, especially if you're joining from somewhere in Eastern or Central Europe or somewhere else that's really affected by this, this conflict between Russia and America. So that's it for this episode. Thanks so much. I wish you all happy holidays. Hopefully we're not going to have an outbreak of World War III before our next episode of America Explained. But if we do, I promise I'll drop a bonus episode from the bomb shelter. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.